listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline, and today we're bringing you a special edition two-part episode from our time spent at South by Southwest EDU. As you may have heard, it's officially that time of year and Panel Picker is open. So if you're as excited for queso and great barbecue as we are, you better get to the South by Southwest EDU RFP that's open now through July 20th, which means you have two more weeks left to get the submissions in before the deadline. I know our team is busy creating interactive and engaging learner experiences for our sessions and are eager to hit submit. You might remember that Getting Smart was a media partner at the last conference, and while there, we got to meet and interview thought leaders, change makers, and even a few students. We hope these next two episodes episodes inspire you and maybe even give you ideas for sessions at next year's conference. That's right. Today, we'll hear from South by Southwest EDU attendees on why they attend and what their predictions are about the future of work and learning. One last thing before we get there, we apologize in advance for any background noise you might hear, but like we mentioned, we we were recording live at the conference, and if you've been, you know there's always quite a bit of buzz. First up, let's hear from Connie Liu, a teacher and also the founder of Project Invent, a program that's working to bring more invention programs and high quality projects to high school students. Let's listen in. All right, Emily here, and I have Connie in the podcast studio at South by Southwest. Connie, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm Connie. Uh, I'm a I wear a few hats. I'm a teacher uh, at the Nueva School. I teach engineering and design thinking. Um, I'm a mechanical engineer by training, so I do. Um, my my background is a lot in uh, designing assistive technologies, so specifically uh, technologies for people with disabilities to help them restore that independence for them back. And then um, I'm founder of Project Invent, um, which is a program for. Uh, bringing invention programs to high schools to get students involved in designing products for social good. We agree that projects and project-based learning definitely develops confidence and gives kids a chance to have real authentic learning opportunities. You mentioned Project Invent. Is that one way that you're, it sounds like you're doing that and providing that for students? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, Project Invent is bringing invention programs to high schools across the country, and we're really trying to uh, get students um, outside of their immediate bubble and really thinking about how uh, they can use technology and build these skills through invention and entrepreneurship to give back to their community. So, for example, um, to get students out of uh, what they already know about their community, we introduce them to people in their community that they design with. So students in my program have designed everything from a smart wallet to help blind people be able to detect bill denominations. Um, the U.S. is a really interesting place in that it's one of the only countries left who uh, still have bills that are all the same size and are not blind friendly. Um, so they were designing technologies to combat that. Um, to everything to um, shelter pods to help uh, specifically designed for homeless families. So in the throughout the work in Project Event Invent, are students managing projects on their own? Are they learning how to say you know make a new idea? Say different type of bills or working with assistive technologies for students with disabilities or people with disabilities, are they, yeah, are they managing that process on their own or learning how to manage that process on their own? Yeah, it's completely student run and completely, uh, 
project-based in that way. Um, the students like to call it, it's like a small startup. Um, so I basically just make the connections with them, for them. For I connect them to a client in the community who um, they, they can meet, learn about needs, and then uh, really go from there in developing the empathy and um, finding out uh, where is the space within um, the challenges that they deal with for us to design in. So students are picking the projects mm-hmm. or identifying exactly. what's Exactly. So I just make the introduction to the person. So for example, for the team um, working on blindness, all I did was introduce them to um, a man named Jimmy, who I know, um, who's blind, and then they kind of took it from there. They had those really powerful human conversations and learned about blindness, which was really awesome because a lot of these students just had never encountered anyone who was blind and it really put a face and humanness to a problem that they kind of like read about um, disability and they uh, hear about it, but they never really like connect it to um, themselves or their community. And this was a real chance for them to connect um, and then use those powerful human connections as the jumping board for designing and inventing mm-hmm. um, because a lot of these students had never been exposed to engineering before either. They were completely based on those human connections that they make. They're so motivated to learn all of these skills that we're always trying to get more students to design in, but I think the real core of it is we just need to base it in um, humans and uh, base it in meeting people in your community and seeing the applications to get students involved. Human-centered in design, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you are describing really powerful learning experiences for students that sound collaborative, they sound authentic, and they sound challenging, right? We Mm -hmm. think those are three things that really make high quality projects and powerful learning experiences. Was this a was this idea the result of a powerful learning experience you had growing up? Um, yeah, um, so I actually got really lucky in college because I, I had a pretty traditional um, high school and like K through twelve background. I was really good at taking tests, got straight A's, um, and then um, was basically really good at solving solved problems, and that's what I was comfortable with and what I was good at. Then freshman year of college, I actually worked with this group um, on building a product called Finger Reader which is a uh, camera mounted on a ring to help blind people read on the go. Um, So for example... Uh, if they're out at a restaurant or if they are trying to read the newspaper, they can scan directly to the place they want to read. So, for example, if they want to look at desserts right now, they can scan directly to there and just follow it with their finger um, like they would if they were a kid. When you're reading, you just follow, trace a line. Um, and that basically empowers blind people to be able to uh, have agency over what they read Um Uh, Whereas a lot of the solutions out there are at base. You have to take a picture of the whole thing and it reads it all out to you. You don't really have that independence for what you choose to read. Um, So that was a project I got to work on and it was just transformative for me of like, I'm working with real people. This is how um, giving back to the community and impactful work happens in the real world. Whereas in high school, so many of my experiences were like, I joined my community service club because I was interested in doing good for the community. I ended up just like passing water and snacks out during uh, charity races the whole time. But that that wasn't the same sort of empowering work that I wanted to be doing. And this was my experience with like really working um, with people in the community to design something that I could see could have impact impact on people. Right. So clearly an impetus for your brainchild (laughs) and what you're doing now. Exactly. Awesome. So you do a lot of work with projects with students. Mm -hmm. We know that doing projects can be challenging, right? And challenging to do them well. 
right? Yeah, we sure. all do projects to some extent in life, but the failed birdhouse making project in my backyard, that <laughs> I did not do so well. So um, why is it hard to do project-based learning so well? And then maybe talk to us about how you've overcome that through mm. some of your work with Project Invent and yeah, I think especially when you start introducing to students that real world aspect of it, um, it's it's another thing when you're giving them a challenge in a siloed environment. So, for example, build a robot that is able to um, like toss a ball and uh, and like drive around this arena like uh you have a contained challenge for that whereas when you start introducing the real world you uh introduce a lot of doubt in the students as well because as they go through it they're doubting like but am i making enough impact and they're struggling with these very real questions which is so awesome to see in high school um but also really difficult for them so a lot of that mentorship piece of it is just helping them uh get through um uh, what what's the next step? What's the next step? And how can I also accommodate all of this? Um, really good questioning about like what is the right thing to do uh, into your work as well. That's a great. So take the students who do first robotics, right? They have a confined parameters and mm-hmm. they have the first competition, and then put them in a project based scenario where there are parameters that are flexible and things that can change and that's a totally different right and then situation. those are different arenas where they can uh, and they can learn so much from both situations and it kind of like adds that uh, added layer and dimension to it of like real world um challenge where you're designing for people and for impact i love what you said that it doubt enters the equation Mm -hmm. and then they're not sure if they are making enough difference or doing the right thing. We think it is, there's no better time for young people to make a difference and projects is a great way to do that, right? right? Yeah. But yeah, that is a different layer or an element that makes it a little bit challenging. That is great. (laughs) I haven't, I've never thought about that. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Um, Then just, is there anything else you want to share for anyone who's getting started doing this work or um, interested in learning more about your work? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I think especially uh, a lot of people find this work as teachers intimidating because they're like, how the heck am I going to help all these students like make real world change and like build a product that is going to be really impactful in the world? And I think a lot of uh, teachers could be intimidated by that. But honestly, like what I found with working with students is, yes, I have an engineering background, but actually that doesn't come in as much as you would expect because they have Google and I just honestly teach them how to Google. (laughs) And then um, really my role is just being that uh, confident person in their life that I believe that they can make an impact. Mm -hmm. And I'm just that person who continues to believe in them even when that doubt enters their mind. Um, so that's the role I play as mentor and which is why I feel like this is something that can be brought to more schools and um, any any passionate teacher can bring into their classroom. Um, and then for Project Invent, we're also um, uh, recruiting 10 more schools for next year to be part of that initial cohort of um, student teams. Um, so then we have a website, projectinvent.org, that uh, people can go to to uh, learn more, contact me, and then be able to um, find out more about starting their own invention teams at their schools. I love the work that Connie is doing to help youth gain the entrepreneurial and project management skills needed to better prepare for the future of work. Thank you to Connie and her team. Now let's listen in to an interview with Jessica Millstone, who's the Director of Engagement at BrainPop, and she shares why she loves South by Southwest EDU and what the future of learning should look like. 
Hi, this is Emily here. I'm with Jessica Millstone. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Hi, Emily. Um, I, so as you said, my name is Jessica Millstone. I'm the Director of Engagement at BrainPop, which is a K-8 um, educational technology product. We're a subscription-based service that we sell into schools, and we're in um, over 40% of all U.S. schools and also internationally. So why are you at South By, and what makes this mm-hmm. conference different oh, yeah. than others that you attend? So South By is a conference that I commit to every year. Um, This is my seventh South by EDU that I've attended. Um, I'm on the advisory board of the festival. Um, So I've really, um, I put a lot of myself into developing this festival. It's just really, um, I think for educators, it's a fun festival, first of all. It's one that you work hard to get to. I mean, you have to justify it and like really, you know, account for it um, in your PD schedule. And I think that the educators really make time to come to this festival. Um, They carve out the time in their schedule, their time schedule, but also their PD allotments, what they might be allowed to attend each year. Yeah. They really prioritize it. So when the people who come here, it's just that level of commitment is reflected in the sessions, but also in the participation. Um, in the participation online as well. So I see a really rich Twitter conversation. I think a lot of the leaders who are speaking here actually utilize that in great ways. They utilize the audience participation tools that are built into the app with Slido and being able to like elevate um, different questions and conversations. Then I also think that this conference celebrates education in a way. Like I said, it's a kind of a party to be here, but that makes it fun. And that makes it like you are part of an industry, not just siloed in your classrooms. Um, That kind of respect for teachers can't be um, manufactured. It's totally authentic here. So what I really liked hearing you say was that South by is different because it's engaging for education educators, there's clearly a following. It's not one of those conferences where you, you have a hashtag that you sometimes post to and sometimes follow. I mean, I've been following before I even got here, right? And so people truly do come to connect, to learn. And then also you mentioned that the sessions are really well designed, which they are, right? Mm-hmm. I'm especially enjoying the meetup style session mm-hmm. that I feel so much more participatory than some of the other things um, or other types of sessions that I've seen done at other conferences. So we have a lot of experience doing the meetup. Um, I've been the co-organizer of the New York EdTech Meetup for almost three years now. Um, and so and we've learned a lot in that time. And I, of course, I attended even before that. So I know the lighter the programming, the better the experience for the people. Um, we really try to make it about connecting with others. Um, part of the reason why South by came to New York in January was because there's like a really strong New York-Austin connection. Um, and they, uh, I think they said it's the number one um, region from which our, the speakers come. So there's like over 90 speakers this year from the New York area in some way. Um, and that's just, and that's not even counting attendees. Um, and so it's been really great to have this sort of like Austin, New York, and you know, certainly where I live in Brooklyn, a lot of people move to Austin and back and forth. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so to do it all, and you know, the other hallmark of the meetup is the in-person experience, which a lot of the times, you know, we have these beautiful, long-lasting digital relationships with people, but we don't ever get together in person. Um, actually, the I, the fact that we can just communicate digitally through uh, Instagram, Facebook, even just texting, it makes it uh, easier to forget to do either a call or a face-to-face. So the meetup is a very special, protected time when we all come together and talk to 
each other. Um, I, one of the people I just met here in the room is from my <laughs> meetup, and that's how we know each other, and we know each other in person. You know, we recognize each other's faces. Yeah. So this is this might seem like a stretch, mm-hmm. but I'm fascinated by the future of learning and what that's going to look like mm-hmm. for students. And what you're saying makes me think about something that I keep hearing time and time again, that it's the future of learning and the future of what our graduates are going to look like mm-hmm. isn't it's going to be very connected right mm-hmm. we are all connected but they're also going to be really in touch with others and connected face to face more than i think maybe we thought five years ago mm-hmm. right like yeah i used to envision okay all this technology is mm-hmm. coming we're just going to be glued to devices right but It'll i really don't virtual. right but i really don't think that's no that's what it i would love to hear you talk yeah. about it because it sounds like you might be onto that too yeah you know um I, so i also do as part of not part of the meetup but also i do a, a talk for parents in the new york city area about kids and technology and social media and one thing that has become more and more um, crucial is that parents really help facilitate these face-to-face relationships mm-hmm. because they don't happen automatically anymore and and you it's like a muscle if you lose it might atrophy you might not remember to call somebody um, you might only leave it to digital so encouraging families to start this process really early and keep get kids getting together in person and prioritizing that in their kids lives um, has been really crucial and then now I think teachers are onto that too like they really see that like oh school is a social experience as much as it is a learning environment and that um, teachers are really being asked to step it up and to cultivate those interpersonal relationships in ways one of the ways I see that happening that I think is really successful is through like a very explicit social emotional learning curriculum that a lot of schools implement Um, so SEL in the classroom is not extra it is embedded and part of the fabric of the teaching and learning experience Um, I think that I mean we really we want kids to become the confident uh, team players that we need in the workforce Mm -hmm. going forward like we have no idea what kids are going to do like the actual work that they're going to do right so the only thing we can do is prepare them to like work with others (laughs) and to like figure that stuff out and be flexible and um self-assured yeah so we're um obsessed is probably the best word with project-based learning for this reason yeah um that's really embedded with Mm -hmm. strong social emotional development right so we're learning to work in teams learning to work with others and we don't know what the content is going to be it's interchangeable yeah. in many ways and yep. that's fantastic mm-hmm. that you have that flexibility to say like um, and you know so BrainPop takes that approach too so uh, like our coding platform for example is project based coding so you, it's across all topics not just CS topics not just STEM topics it's across social studies and history and great authors and historical figures and any teacher teaching anything can use coding as a project to show what you know about whatever subject. Right. So that's a perfect example of the future of work and learning is tech embedded and tech rich, but it is also personal. It is also mm-hmm. expressive. Yes. Yeah. And it's real world focused. So then the last thing I would just ask is what do you think is on the horizon? Mm-hmm. So we're at South by we're mm-hmm. around a lot of really mm-hmm. imaginative um, entrepreneurs, educators, leaders who are all kind of paving the way. Mm-hmm. And so we're amongst all these fabulous ideas, mm-hmm. um, but some of them definitely bubble to the top mm-hmm. and I'd be curious as to what you think you're also probably in that category mm-hmm. of people kind of paving the way what do you think's next that's a great question I think about the future all the time and I think that it's something that's really missing in a lot of our um, 
our conversations about education and sort of just politics and policy is like, really, who is all this for? It's for the next generation and to pass it on. And so what I hear here and what I'm seeing also is a ton of student voice. So I just came out of a session about how um, technology takes over our lives and all of the crisis that adults are going through around like how much we spend, how much time we spend on our phones and and what came out of it was that if you talk to eighth graders, they already know this and they recognize it and they are changing their behavior already and criticizing the adults for not changing And their we behavior. spend 50 hours talking about it and they're like, oh, I don't like, need Facebook. Gone. Exactly. And they just do it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great story that was just told about a kid who um, lost her cell phone and she was like, Ugh, you know, it's somewhere. And then eventually cleaning her room, she eventually found it. And the teacher from Brooklyn who was on the panel with Manoush Zamarodi said, can you think of a single adult who would have torn that house apart and not done anything else until they found that phone? Mm -hmm. For the student, it was like, okay, I don't have it for a few days. Um, yeah. We'll take our current, the mm -hmm. what has just happened in Florida in the past two weeks. We've spent years talking about those issues mm -hmm. and then elevate student voice or students elevated their own voices. Thank you for and, that, Yeah, exactly. Right? And then, Students demand action. Yeah, and then pal, there yeah. you go. Stuff starts to happen um, because, you know, they want things to happen, right? And, and I'm seeing a lot of students this year walking around. So there's the playground, there's the learning expo, there's the meetup pavilion, there's young students doing performances in all of these areas. Like you actually see like who all this impacts. And to me, that's the future of it. And so as many, as much as um, industry folks can see this and start designing for the actual users, not just the customers who might be purchasing, but the people who are really using it, the kids, um, involving them in the design process, just as much as we do user research research and we talk to parents and we talk to teachers we need to talk to students we need to like really get their voice into there too yeah and um, not make it just a business where mm -hmm. yeah we're for, thinking of them at the end for exactly. sure yeah. they, like that's what they're called the end user but they're actually like the middle user as well like they are the actual this is such a great that is a great I have never thought about it that way I'm having so many epiphanies today which is all um, proof that South by is a good place to be because I'm learning as I'm talking to people um, including you Jessica if you have anything else you'd like our audience to know about if you wouldn't mind giving us a place to find you so where can we find the New York meetup and you where can we find you on social media? Um, so on Twitter, I'm at J underscore Millstone. Um, you can also find me in New York at the EdTech Meetup, which is meetup.com slash NYEdTech. So meetup.com slash NYEdTech. It's completely free to join. We have meetups once a month. They're beautifully catered. There's lots of food. <laughs> and you have rock star educators like we, we do here at South do. by Austin. All we right. Do, As Jessica said, we must continue to remember who we're doing this work for. No matter what you think the future of learning should look like, we must consider the end user, our students. Which brings us to our next guest. We're excited to bring you a student voice from Tessa Simmons, a high school senior who attended and spoke at South by Southwest EDU. Tessa shares how her education has been influenced by learning that happens outside of the school hours, being empowered, having autonomy in her learning, and her thoughts about the future of education. Tess, thanks so much for joining the Getting Smart podcast. We're recording today from South by Southwest, where you're about to give a really awesome presentation. Um, I know, you know, one thing that South by has really been working on is student voice. Um, and so I know a lot of people are going to be really excited to hear from you today. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself and where you go to school. 
Um, so I'm from Boise, Idaho. I go to school in or at One Stone High School. It is a private, tuition-free, one of the first in the nation, mm-hmm. which is really cool. So we have a no-cost model, meaning we are open to anyone and everyone. Um, we believe in student voice, mm-hmm. so our board of directors is two-thirds students and one-third adults. And One Stone actually started as a 501c3 nonprofit mm-hmm. um, ten years ago yeah. uh, in Teresa and Joel Poppins' basement. Mm-hmm. Um, we eventually moved up to a different building, and we just moved into another warehouse, which is very awesome. But we are in our second year of the high school, moving on to our third next year, which is very exciting. Yeah. I, I will be one of the first to graduate, which is that's awesome. Very exciting. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, so we believe in project-based learning. We use design thinking from mm-hmm. Stanford D School as our model. Um, we use design thinking for almost everything that we do, all of our courses, our design lab projects, which are a big chunk of our mm-hmm. um, school work. So, yeah. And one of the things that we've really appreciated about Lonestone and that I know you can speak to is is the learning that takes place outside the classroom. And it's hard to even call Lonestone just a classroom yeah. because it really is kind of a learning hub, right? But tell me a little bit more about how your um, education has been influenced by the learning that has taken place outside of traditional kind of school walls. Yeah. Okay. So outside of the school walls, there's a lot that happens in Lonestone mm-hmm. between the hours of 9 and 3.15. Mm-hmm. But after that, there is equally the same amount of stuff going on. So we have Project Goods, which are experiential service programs mm-hmm. where you use design thinking, um, sort of like our design labs that I mentioned earlier. So you use those to, um, to solve a real-world problem in the community. So you have a community partner, use design thinking to come up with a really creative solution. So there's a lot of learning going on with mm-hmm. that. And that's for... Um, that's open to all students from the Treasure Valley, so anyone can participate in Project Goods. Mm-hmm. There's also Model UN, mock trials. You do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of um, research paper writing. Yeah. You do um, public speaking, which is really cool. And then there's also the Board of Directors for One Stone, so there's a lot of learning there. So yeah. there's um, learning about financial parts of a 501c3 nonprofit, yeah. the organization um, aspects of a 501c3 mm-hmm. nonprofit. So there's a lot of learning going on. Yeah. And then in personal lives, there's whatever you want to do. You can research um, different projects that you're interested in. You go home, kind of indulge yourself in whatever you're learning. So, Tell me a little bit about um, the student leadership. I think that's such an important piece, too. How has um, actually getting to be involved in what some would consider sort of normal adult functions at a mm-hmm. school, um, participating in a school board, like how has that shaped you and your peers, um, your learning, and sort of your sense of what it would take to, to be in sort of the employment space? Yeah, so... I think practicing our voice in the safe space of our school gives us the empowerment to mm-hmm. go into the real world yeah. and um, practice that voice, yeah. kind of employ it and use it for good, for what we believe in. And I think being on the board of directors has really helped me do that. Um, it's gotten me here to South by Southwest yeah. and um, a bunch of other really cool spaces. And by learning to use our voice, we're learning to empower others to use their voice. So mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends in the traditional schooling that I'm trying to empower mm-hmm. by doing what I'm doing, yeah. by empowering them. And it's, it's really cool. I can see it coming out in them. I'm encouraging them to come to One Stone and practice. But it's a very, very important piece at mm-hmm. One Stone. I think it's what sets one stone apart the most because Mm -hmm. we are the ones that 
have to go to school and if we have to be there why not make it what we want to do yeah how has um like you mentioned i mean one of the things that i'm really struck by is the fact that um the materials that are put together for for board meetings and the financials you're reviewing how have you felt like that has really prepared you for what you know college and careers will look like yeah um I've only been on the board of directors for a little bit less than a year now, Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's kind of shown me what I want to do in my life. So I think just seeing the inspiration coming from other students, Mm -hmm. hearing them stand up and talk about the financials of Cornerstone is really inspiring that students can actually do that. And Mm -hmm. my whole life was just kind of put that aside and Mm -hmm. said, oh, that's for adults. And then I realized, oh, I'm a year away from being an adult. (laughs) I should probably learn these things. And this has been a softer, kind of a cushiony way mm-hmm. to go into the real world. Well, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of adults that either have never reviewed a financial statement yeah. or who don't do it until they're in um, a job where mm-hmm. sort of, you know, part of their career depends on being able to review that. So it's I just. right in. Right. So I love the idea that not only are you asked to review it, but to actually provide thoughtful guidance around yeah. it and help decision make around that. Yeah. I think. Um, that's an experience that walking into college and or to an internship and saying I've been able to do this right kind of gives you a leg up on on many of your peers perhaps but I love also what you said about helping and I think this is part of One Stone's motto and mission too is to not just serve the students within your school but figure out how does that support Boise how does that support sort of your other networks too Um, and I I loved what you talked about too and I know this about One Stone is that you do have your school but all of the kind of after school programs are available to the entire community which is great let's talk a little bit about failure I think that's something especially when we think about kind of traditional education um, has been a tricky subject and I think it's one thing that I've seen one stone model and I know that you can speak to, but how has, um, how has failure actually propelled you forward? So at one stone, we believe in something called failing forward, mm-hmm. which is very different from just failing. Yeah. Um, failing is when you kind of stop and say, oh man, like that was just a bust. Mm-hmm. And then failing forward is when you kind of take a step back and say, what did I learn from this? Like what mm-hmm. happened or why didn't something happen? And you say, okay, I have an idea for next time like I won't do that or I should have done this mm-hmm. you you learn from those mistakes so we say fail forward um, at one stone because we believe in failing quick mm-hmm. and failing forward mm-hmm. so the faster you failed the more you learn um, and the more you learn the better off you'll yeah. be in the future if you go through life thinking that failure is a bad thing you're gonna you're gonna be struck hard on the head mm-hmm. there, failure is a real a reality um, we don't Practice failing at yeah. Weston. We practice yeah. failing forward. You always have to take a step back and learn yeah. from those mistakes. Um, that's one of the coolest things about One Stone. I last year failed one of my design labs, mm. which was very hard for me mm-hmm. because I don't like to admit to my failures. And we actually got up on stage in front of a big crowd and said, "We failed," mm-hmm. and all of them were like, "What? You yeah. can't fail!" But we did. We just didn't empathize mm. properly, and so. From then, I've been really careful about my empathizing and kind of figuring out, okay, no, we need to do this more. We need to do that more. I've become a better leader because of Mm. it. Um, So in the long run, failing is a good thing, but failing forward is way better. Yeah. How have you been able to take risks? Like where have you sort of jumped into a subject or topic that you didn't know about, but you knew you wanted to have more? And where was, talk just a little bit about the space that I think you were given as part of that failing forward to like take risks and to learn something new. So we do have a really awesome support system. So we have coaches that kind of guide us along and help us when we're stuck. But part of failing forward is learning to ask for help. Mm -hmm. 
and that's something I'm still trying to get used to because in the traditional school I was way too embarrassed to just yeah. say I don't get this yeah. because I was like oh the other students get it mm-hmm. I'm just dumb or I'm mm-hmm. just behind um, and so I was like oh you know I'll just catch up later but turns out if you have a question mm-hmm. other students probably have a question yeah. that is something I'm still trying to get used to and yeah. all the other students are still trying to get and that used to. Can, that in itself can feel risky yeah, right like definitely. just being vulnerable to definitely. say I, I need this taught to me in a different way or yeah. I need to have a different level mm-hmm. of comprehension here given everything we've talked about what is your hope for the, the future of education the future of learning you know mm-hmm. what what do you hope for um, students that are that are just starting high school they're just going into middle school what do you hope their education experience looks like not just at one stone or not just in mm-hmm. Boise but um, what can we as adults be be working on and trying to provide and and how do you think we best go about that yeah I think one of the biggest things is encouraging students to try new things mm-hmm. um, get, get rid of the insecurities about taking a technology class or a STEM mm-hmm. class when you're 15 and you're a teenage girl in Boise Idaho mm-hmm. to push her to take that STEM class mm-hmm. you know I was one of the students that was too afraid to take it mm. because I was afraid of failing that class. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm encoding, mm. not very good at it, but I'm still taking it yeah. because I'm dependent on Google and I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, I should probably learn mm-hmm. how that works. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that just encouraging students to take those risks is one of the biggest things and try out their passions because you never know. For me, taking a constitutional law class in mm-hmm. ninth grade, I would have been absolutely just downright miserable yeah and then last year it was my favorite class of the whole year and I think just learning to take those risks and you never know Mm -hmm. um, it sounds too like part of the reason that the learning experience has worked for you is because it had real world connections too right like it sounds like combining um your classroom and your out of school and internships like it made it real world so you could actually understand why that would support a future career or help you make a decision to not go a certain way um i think the relevancy is one of the key aspects that a lot of students are missing in traditional schooling I really enjoyed my time with Tessa. Like we mentioned, she's a high school student from Boise, Idaho. She's a powerful student speaker at the conference. I can't wait to hear more students present and share their story next year. I agree. The room was actually at capacity when Tessa spoke. It was really amazing to get to see her live. Next up, we'll hear from Olka Joshi Hansen, the Associate Director of Education Reimagine. Olka is working hard to help create an ecosystem that will move us forward to a more learner-centered system. Let's listen in to hear more about why and how learner-centered systems could impact and move forward the future of learning. So one thing at Getting Smart that we're really focused on is what this future looks like, right? And what transformation looks like and what are we transforming for? When you think about that future, what do you see? So when we think about our current system, which maybe we can talk about a a school-centered system, right? It really is 150 plus years old and it was designed to sort and sift and rank kids. And it was never really designed um, to prepare kids for what we know they need for the 21st century. And so we think about a distinction between reforming education and transforming education. Reforming and innovating on our current system is wonderful and it's it's yielded a lot of amazing results over the last 20 years and we're starting to push up against the limits of that. It's sort of like trying to rejig a Model T to get to the moon. It wasn't built to do that and you can't reform and innovate yourself into, into making that happen. And so we really think about the transformation of education, which is rethinking the entire purpose um, of education, rethinking our assumptions about who young people are and what they're capable of doing. And that takes a real mindset shift. And so that's what Education Reimagined 
does. I asked so that you can enlighten our audience and tell us a little bit about the organization. Great. Um, so we think of ourselves as movement builders and really holding the space for the hundreds and thousands of amazing people out there who are already doing this work. But one of the big things that we we believe needs to happen is that people who are learner-centered need to see each other and see themselves as part of this larger movement. And part of that is giving them a common lexicon and a common vocabulary to talk about what they do. So we think about learner-centered in a couple of different pieces. The first is this mindset shift from being school-centered to being learner-centered. So in a school-centered system, you're really about um, transmitting knowledge. You're about the efficiency of the system and delivering education to kids. You think you sort of have to force kids to learn. And in a learner-centered mindset, if you've made it, you really think of each kid as being wondrous and capable and unique and wanting to learn and capable of learning. And so we think of that mindset shift as being pretty binary. You can't iterate your way into that. But once you've made the mindset shift, then we think about five elements that all of these environments start to play with. And the vocabulary is going to sound really similar to what people use in a school-centered paradigm, but we think it means something very different. So we talk about learner agency. We talk about socially embedded learning. We talk about personalized, relevant, and contextualized education. We think about open-walled and then competency-based. So learner agency really is this idea that education is the work of the learner. And so you can't do it to them. You can't do it for them. You've got to engage and develop a young person's capacity and agency to take ownership of their learning and to engage in it. It's socially embedded in the sense that that learning is a social endeavor. So you do it with other people. You do it out in the community. But it's also about developing human beings as social creatures. Um, it's personalized, relevant, contextualized. So a lot of times when we talk about personalized learning, we're imagining every kid is going to get to the same things, but they can choose whether to do it on a laptop or a tablet, or they can do it at a desk or in a chair, or they can do it at their own pace. But if you have personalized learning that isn't about things that interest the kid, that they're passionate about, that relates to their background and their community... We don't think that's really personalized, relevant, and contextualized. Our fourth element is open-walled, so the community becomes the playground for learning instead of the walls of a school, and so learning happens anywhere, anytime, any place. And then, because all of those four things are true, it needs to be competency-based. So competencies are not bits and pieces of standards. They are actually about these big competencies that kids can develop in all of these different ways and places, and they're going to start looking really different. Yeah, kids. because it's place-based, it has to be competency based, right? If you're truly doing that to right. develop the agency, to develop personalized um, situations and contexts where students can become human beings and not just vehicles or vessels, right? Yep. That makes and total you, sense the way you just described that. Um, the argument isn't necessarily just for CBE or competency-based, right? It is for developing lovely human beings who have a, a vast skill set. And the best way to do that is, is to focus on these competencies. Yeah. Can you tell me an example of a school you work with yeah. where those, you know, four things are going on? The mindset, then agency, social contextualized learning, personalized, and it's an open and, and competency-based? So some of the models that we think are probably pushing it the furthest, um, one of them is the Met School in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, so the Met has really flipped high school on its head. So the first thing they do when kids come is ask them, what do you do when no one's telling you what to do? And then based on that, they have them go out into the community and find internships and mentors and they spend their time mostly in those internships and they come back for for their mentors and for their teachers to help translate some of what they're doing out in the field into the competence.
competencies, but it's really four years of amazing community-based learning. And the kids, you know, the kids I've interviewed who come out of there, they span the spectrum in terms of who they are, what they're passionate about, and what they go on to do. Um, and that is a, you know, it's a 20-plus-year-old model. So they, they're, that is a place to go to see how each of these elements is being pushed in really amazing ways. Another is Cedar Rapids, uh, is in Cedar Rapids. It's the Iowa Big School. Um, they are small tables, and each um, learner is part of a, a team or a couple of teams that are doing community-based projects. Every project has to have a community partner. And so these kids are learning how to work in teams, how to develop and design and execute projects. And one of the most exciting things we found during one of our visits there was talking with the community partners who said their perception of young people has changed as a result of being engaged with Iowa Big. And the young people's perception of their own community has changed. So they'll say they started out really wanting to leave Cedar Rapids, but because they're now part of the community, they actually really want to stay. And so it's an amazing testament to the power of what happens when you engage young people really authentically in their community. So tell me a little bit more. You mentioned equity. Um, You talked a little bit about your own experiences growing up and how that kind of played in um, Mm -hmm. to where you are now, but would love to hear you expand or expound upon that. Yeah. So uh, first, I want to give it an image because we've all seen this series of two cartoons. The first is the kids at the fence and they have different size boxes and they're different sizes so they can't see over the fence. And the second frame has different size boxes for different kids so they can all see over the fence. And I want to see a third frame, which is some kids standing at the fence with different size boxes, but some kids are digging under the fence, some kids are painting the fence, some kids are taking the fence down, some kids are like just lying on the ground. But the idea of equity to me is that every kid is actually able to do and be who they want to be, not necessarily just at the fence looking over. And so when we think about equity, to me we have to think about the equity of the learning experience and then the equity of that human experience. And Learner Centered to me addresses both in really important ways. The first is that that idea of the learning experience, that because it is starting with each unique learner and thinking about who they are, what they need to get where they want, you really are able to hone in on and expound on each individual learner's strengths while also not making their deficits things that are holding them back or the areas where they aren't as strong. And because learner-centered is putting the learner in the center all the time, it's able to to do that. Um, The second piece around that human experience, you know, when we think about equity, we have to think about differences in social capital in addition to everything else. And to me, schools like the Met, in addition to just giving kids amazing chances to go out into the community, part of what they are doing is helping to bridge the social capital gap by allowing kids to get out, make networks, create networks, create relationships. And we know that that is more important than your GPA or your test scores on standardized English and math tests in terms of how far you're going to go in life. And so I think they are also places where when I have gone in, they are places that very explicitly talk about power, about privilege, about structures, not only from from kids who don't always have those things, but also from kids who do. And so it makes it possible for the young people in those environments. I found it fascinating that they are able to engage in those conversations and look around the world in a really different way. And if we are about equity, that is not just about test scores and evening up test scores. If we are about equity in the sense of equity of experience and access, then having schools that are able to do all of that in one place for every learner is a 
really big deal, and it is not that it's going to be easy. But what we have been doing in the school-centered system isn't easy either. It's not cheap, and so I'd rather that we be putting our efforts towards creating a really learner-centered environment and system that is at the very least going to be addressing equity in those kind of deep ways. Yeah. I see a lot of us trying to mitigate the, the everything's not equal, and it's almost a conflated version of the word equal of what some of us are striving for when it comes to equity, because yeah. it is still based on a test score. Yeah. What real focus on equity, right, would be what you're describing. It's not just a racial thing. It's not just a socioeconomic. It is a social capital. It is all of it is all of those Everything. things, yeah. right? Yeah. Not just a conflated version of equal. And I'm not discounting any of the efforts that I but you're right, to look at it holistically, there's so many different facets yeah. and, and things that we need to be thinking about. We couldn't agree more with Olka when it comes to rethinking our assumptions about young people and what they're capable of. Now we'll close today's episode with a quick interview we had with Michael Crawford, who's the Director of Strategy and Partnerships at Real World Scholars. He'll share his thoughts on why the future of learning will be connected. Emily here, and I'm sitting with Michael. If you don't mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do and who are you? Sure. My name is Michael Crawford. I am the Director of Strategy and Partnerships at Real World Scholars, and we are a nonprofit based in San Diego, uh, and we help classrooms start and run businesses. So we provide them with technology and funding and resources to really help them use entrepreneurship, not to turn every young person into an entrepreneur, uh, although that could possibly happen, uh, but instead to use entrepreneurship as a vehicle for learning, as a way to connect them to the broader community, to allow them to do the work that they care about and to make learning fun. And so maybe expand their horizons or what they see as opportunities for them to do in life, mm -hmm. expand their network. For sure. One great thing about entrepreneurship is that it requires skills of all kinds. And so young people who are interested in art can contribute to the marketing and the branding. Young people who can't stop talking are great salespeople and great at building community relations. And so entrepreneurship is an excellent tool to help young people kind of become activated. And you said it's funded, so that means I don't have to pay for it? That's right. So schools, districts, uh, it is free for them. Uh, we, we provide the funding. We have great partners uh, as well that can help uh, support ed corps, which are education corporations. These are the classroom-based businesses. Uh, help support them locally or nationally whatever works for them. Great. So entrepreneurship is something we definitely see as trending or more of a trend in learning um, these days. So I'd add it to the bucket of things we're going to see in the future of learning, the future of work, uh, right? Well, actually, it already is. It, <laughs> it right. is here, right? Yeah. So I'd ask you, Michael, what do you see um, happening in learning? What's next? What do, you, what do you see in the future? Sure. In my mind, the future of learning is much more community-based or communal or collective. I think there, uh, while personalized learning is gaining ground and has been for a while, uh, there's something really powerful about collective learning and connecting with other human beings. In the future, uh, as we're seeing now, uh, it's as, it, as it's always been, it's not necessarily what you know, but rather who you know. And so what that means is is for young people to have opportunities to be able to meet new people, to be able to do work that serves others and solves problems for others. I think that's the future of learning. It's not this in the class, kind of disconnected, isolated learning that takes place and then all of a sudden you leave and go do work. It's much more integrated. It's much more connected. So a future grad, would one of the words you would use to describe them be a connected individual? What else 
What yeah. else would you add to that? Connected yeah, individual? I, mean, I think I think being connected is huge. Uh, I also think there's something really powerful about uh, agency or about ownership in terms of owning your own learning and your own life. I think historically there have been pathways that have been set up where you graduate from high school and then maybe you go to college and then you get a job and it's sort of this very clear linear path. I think nowadays and what we've seen more recently is that the path is much less linear. It's much more, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step sideways, three steps back. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's not a, this sort of like it's clean, easy snake, path. shoots and ladders. Exactly, right. And so what that means is that the, the future grad needs to be able to navigate that. They need to be able to recognize that and figure out what are the best moves for themselves, for their for their community, for their for their career, um, and so this we need to sort of um, take back the uh, the career path uh, that has been laid out before us. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of agility. I think agility is a great word. Again, agency, ownership. Mm -hmm. I heard a, a great term on a podcast recently called personal sovereignty. So this idea that like ah. I get to own the things that are relevant to me. I am in charge of the things that are relevant to me. So if we can do that in community and in a collective space, I think that's ideal. A big thank you to everyone interviewed in today's episode. We so appreciate your work and all that you're doing to make the future of learning happen for students. If you want to learn more about any of the people or organizations mentioned, we'll have them linked in the show notes and on the blog. And we can't end today's podcast without thanking South by Southwest EDU for letting us be a media partner at the 2018 conference and putting on a wonderful event for educators, ed leaders, and innovators alike. Stay tuned for part two of this episode next week, where we'll share more voices from South by Southwest EDU, including more students. If you want to be sure not to miss it, just head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, don't forget the RFP is open now through July 20th, so get your submissions in. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline and Jessica signing off.